lines proper, bush lines, and information lines can be heard weekdays at 8.59 a.m. and 1 and 7 p.m. and on weekends at 10 a.m. and 1 and 7 p.m. To add or move anything, call 907-235-7721, extension 229. You are listening to KBBI Homer AM 890. The time is 9 a.m. Coming up next, the coffee table. Good morning. Coffee Table comes from Pier 1 Theater, Homer's Community Theater, supporting community voices. Schedules and information on Pier 1 Productions at 226-2287 and pier1theater.org. Good morning. You're tuned in to KBBI Homer AM 890. I'm Josh Crone, and you're listening to The Coffee Table. I have some guests with me in the studio this morning. I have Bob Shavelson, who is here in the studio, and Mako Haggerty. Um, let's check your mics here. Morning, Josh. I got uh, Mako, go ahead. Good morning. There we go. And Bob, go ahead. Hey, Josh. There we go. I got everybody there. And... Joining us uh, on Zoom, I have Betsy Oliver. Betsy, can you hear us? Good morning. Good morning, Betsy, and Robert Archibald. Robert, can you hear us? 
Sure can, Josh. Good morning. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much, everybody, for joining me here on the coffee table. And uh, this morning, we are going to talk about the 1989 Exxon Valdez oil spill. The 33rd anniversary for the oil spill was uh, last week on March 24th. Um, and it's always a good idea to remind folks of what happened and uh, the aftermath of that and how, uh, how we came together to deal with that and how we're still dealing with that. And so the, uh, the guests that we have in the studio here this morning are here to uh, talk about all of that. And uh, they have uh, uh, hands in the Prince William Sound Regional Citizens Advisory uh, Council, uh, the uh, uh, Cook Inlet Keeper, and uh, just uh, general water life in Cook Inlet and Catchmack Bay. So thank you all for joining me. Uh, for our listeners, if you'd like to call in during our discussion, go ahead and give me a call, 907-235-7721. Simon is standing by to take that call to put you on air. Or if you'd like to send me an email, you may do that by emailing josh at kbbi.org, and we will take your question and put you on air that way. So uh, I'd like to go ahead and start off talking with uh, uh, Bob Shavelson. And uh, Bob, can you just give us a rundown? Because I know not all of us who live here in Homer now, uh, we're here in 1989. We may not remember specifically what happened. Well, I was not either. So I, I, yeah. I got here in 95 shortly after. And, and uh, you know, the, the, the turmoil and the angst that was created by the Exxon Valdez spill led a group of people here to form the nonprofit group, group Cooking Like Keeper. And I, I worked there for 26 years. I'm no longer working there. I've retired. We've got a great staff there. It's a wonderful organization. I support it a lot, but I'm not representing them here. And I'm also on the board of the Prince William Sound Regional Citizens Advisory Council. I'm also not speaking for that organization. I'm here as an individual today. But, uh, you know, obviously the Exxon spill was a traumatic event for everyone in the state and across the, the globe. And uh, I think we're going to hear from some folks that were here today, including Mako next to me. But uh, I'll just uh, say that, you know, that, that event really transformed the way we look at our relationship with the oil and gas industry. And, and it was really, that, that event was really fueled by a pervasive complacency. And unfortunately, we're seeing that complacency kind of creep back in to the oversight and the management of oil and gas in Alaska. Thanks, Bob. Uh, Marco, anything to share on that? Well, yeah, I, I, um, I was around for... Uh, for the spill. In fact, uh, I worked on the beaches and uh, ran boats during the spill, both in Prince William Sound and also on the outer coast here. So to give you an idea of the extent of the spill, um, and most people know, but it came out of um, Prince William Sound and then worked its way out down the coast and, and got um, Kodiak as well. So uh, I, I, too, am a uh, board member on the uh, Prince William Sound Regional Citizen Advisory Council. Mm -hmm. And that was put together um, as a citizen oversight over the uh, oil industry, uh, something that um, uh, was important then and I think is more important now. Uh, the um, And I'm not speaking for them, I'm speaking for myself, but... Um, but I think these uh, regional citizen advisory councils are extremely important um, for the oversight. When, when, the, when the spill happened, uh, the, um, the, the people uh, really rallied to the cause. And I mean, they were grabbing everything. 
uh, boats. They'd fire it up. They were running around. There, there was nobody walking mm-hmm. around in Valdez when that happened. They were running and uh, getting boats ready, heading out into the sound, grabbing buckets, sponges, uh, paper towels, whatever it took to soak that stuff up because um, it was they. It was uh, a mess. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a you know, and then it just kept getting worse. So um, I um, I showed up a little bit late. On that, I was uh, outside, but somebody called me and said, hey, we need you up here. So I came back up for that. Thanks, Marco. Um, let's see. Let's check in with our uh, guests on uh, Zoom. Uh, Betsy, would you like to jump in and uh, comment about the uh, the origin of the spill? Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm the outreach coordinator for the Prince William Sound, RCAC, we'll call it for short, the Regional Citizens Advisory Council. So I am on staff. I'm located here in Anchorage. Thanks for having me on today. Um, You know, I think Bob and Mako have spoken to the impact through the communities. And it's interesting when, you know, if you look up what actually happened, you you learn, of course, that the the, it's called the Exxon Valdez oil spill because the tanker Exxon Valdez um, hit Bly Reef and 11 million gallons of oil spilled out of that tanker into the water. And if you look at what happened, the first story you'll come across is, oh, the captain, Joe Hazelwood, had been drinking. And so uh, this, this must be the reason. But if you look a little deeper, you see that there were all, at every level of prevention and protection that was supposed to be in place, there had been erosions to that system. You know, the pipeline first oil uh, was running in 1977. Between then and 1989, there hadn't been a large spill. And so things had kind of gotten slack. Um, And uh, that's really where the work of RCAC comes in is that uh, a number of changes were made after that spill to beef up that system and make sure that the prevention was in place, that the response readiness was there, that things are drilled and exercised regularly. And um, that's part of our role is to make sure that that stays to that level, that we don't have that complacency come back in because you get the Swiss cheese effect. A little, a little hole here and a little hole there. Maybe it'll all be fine for a while, but sooner or later, all that Swiss cheese will line up to get a hole where a, a master disaster drops all the way through. So we're here to help make sure that doesn't happen again. Thanks, Betsy. And a question for our last uh, panelist, Roger, uh, Robert Archibald. Uh, Robert, do you want to comment about the uh, the origins of the spill? Uh, your memories of that? My memories of that. I was working on a boat up in the Kiski on March 23rd, and I got a knock on my stateroom door the morning of the 24th, and uh, it was Kevin Bell, who a lot of us remember. He was a cook on that boat, and he said a tanker had run aground in Prince William Sound. I went, oh, how could that be? And he said, yeah, it was the Exxon Valdez, and that was at the time probably one of the flagships of the Exxon fleet. And we kind of just went, well, they're prepared for this kind of stuff over there. And little did we know how much oil was gushing out of that ship and what the oil spill cleanup situation was over there. It was almost non-existent. It was stuck in a snowbank. So as a result of that, 
there had been a group of people over in that area that were concerned about this happening. And prior to Open 90, which is the Oil Pollution Act of 1990, they were discussing some type of citizens group for oversight of the operation over there. And after the spill, this kind of galvanized that organization of which the Prince William Sound Regional Citizens Advisory Council is the outcome. And the uh, Oil Pollution Act of 1990, which was passed by Congress, formed two regional citizens advisory council, one for Cook Inlet and one for Prince William Sound. And uh, it's been a very active group since then. So I'm on the board, I represent the city of Homer and I'm the current president of the board. So yeah. Go. Thanks Robert. You bet. Um, and just to, to you know to, to throw some context in here, I, I was also here during the uh, when the oil spill happened. Uh, I was not an adult. Um, I figure like a lot of uh, folks my own age, uh, our recollections of that event are uh, a bit fuzzy and muddled uh, from from what happened. But uh, I was ten uh, when that happened, and uh, I believe it took what about a week or so for the oil to to migrate around the end of the peninsula and and make its way up to the bay. I remember the the mat of oil. Uh, becoming visible at the mouth of Catchmack Bay, at the mouth of the inlet as it made its way in. And we were instructed to, you know, stay away from the beach, don't go anywhere near Bishop's Beach, stay off the sand. Uh, we're going to be working down here. Um, I made my way to the uh, Seabird Recovery Center, which was located at the uh, then junior high in the swimming pool, um, and uh, hung out there as much as, as much as they'd allow me to. Um, you know, there's not much for a 10-year-old to do as far as oil spill cleanup, but, you know, uh, there was a lot of frenetic energy uh, at that point, uh, time, which, uh, Mako, you pointed out, everybody was ready to jump in and just do something. And uh, I think everybody uh, pitched in and, and uh, you know, whatever they could do, and they were inventing things. So we had uh, splint, we had little groups splinter off. There was no real leadership. People were... Um, um, you know, just uh, being very creative at ways. Uh, I know that they built log booms mm -hmm. down here to prevent uh, oil from coming into some of the uh, estuaries and bays across um, Kachemak Bay. So at the beginning, everybody just pitched in with whatever they could. And like I say, nobody was standing around. They were running. And then, um, you know, the Coast Guard kind of took over. I, I started over in uh, Prince William Sound. And, um, you know, eventually people kind of had jobs. Like one boat would be in charge of picking up garbage from uh, other boats. And another boat would bring, um, you know, the, the diapers into the beach crews. And eventually, there slowly, uh, there was some order. And um, Exxon Val Exxon, uh, the company is kind of a top-down uh, organization. It doesn't <laughs> work from the ground up. It works from the top down. And, and so there was an amazing amount of conflict uh, throughout the whole thing um, that, um, you know, again, reinforces for me why um, these regional citizen advisory councils are so important. Um, we've, you know, I, I honestly think that the citizens did a far, far better job of cleaning up than, 
than what the um, what the directions that we got from Exxon yeah. on that. Now the uh, talked about the, uh, the the makeshift booms, and I remember that happening. I remember the piles of logs being pushed off uh, the tip of the spit where they were uh, cabling them together so they could try to get them out there, and they were pulling them across Tutka and Halibut Cove to protect all those spaces. What kind of preparation was already in place? What what existed before the oil spill that was actually available? Bobby says they were stuck in a snowbank uh, as far as getting uh, any kind of response. Uh, did they have booms? Did they have any kind of spill prevention skimmers? I remember that was one of the one of the things they talked about was we need a skimmer up here as soon as possible. Go ahead. Yeah, I'll I'll take that. I mean, you know, the technology has advanced a lot on on oil spill response, but I I always like to say that that whole idea of responding to an oil spill is an oxymoron. You, you know, you just can't do it. Um, even you know, you're talking about log booms back then in 1989. You're talking about you know state of the art skimmers and and uh, absorbents today. It, it, at the in the best conditions, if you can get 10 or 12 or 15 percent of the oil that's been spilled uh, on the water, that's that's a good standard today. So the focus really has to be on prevention, and and that's where it all has to be because uh, all, all this idea that we're going to respond is is nonsensical to me, and that's why you're also seeing a, a big effort on the part of industry to use what are called dispersants. Mm -hmm. Basically, they want to squirt uh, a soapy material and uh, make that oil out of sight, out of mind, drive it into the water column. And the science shows us that the use of dispersants actually increases the toxicity of spilled oil because it makes it more bioavailable to everything in the water column and the, the benthic communities on the ground. And, you know, the one thing I just note, you know, you can still go out to beaches in the Sound today and dig a hole and find Exxon Valdez oil. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons for that is because the volume of the spill was most, most likely larger than the official estimate that we hear, you know, 11 million gallons we heard there. But there's very good evidence, and, you know, local people might uh, remember Finley Abbott, and then there's a toxicologist named Ricky Ott, who's just done wonderful work in this area. But, uh, you know, when they took, quote-unquote, oil off the Exxon Valdez and brought it to a refinery, in Hawaii, that refinery rejected that quote-unquote oil because it was mostly water. Mm -hmm. So they weren't taking oil off the boat, they were taking water. So uh, a lot of people uh, have some very strong evidence that it was easily over 20 million gallons of oil. So that explains why it's persisting in our environment today. Yeah. Well, I wanted to talk about the uh, uh, dispersants here in a little bit because that's a, a prime concern for uh, cleanup of uh, current and future events. But uh, before we do that, uh, Robert, you had your hand up on Zoom. Did you have something you wanted to share? Oh, I was just going to talk about our uh, log boom building project that actually got uh, developed right out of the multi-agency team, which was actually the first organized group in Homer that was dealing with, and that was representatives from Fish and Game and uh, the city and local people that had some kind of knowledge of an oil spill. But... Uh, there was nothing here in Homer. Everybody was getting a little frantic and there was oil on the outside coast and we knew it was coming. And I believe it was Concor Forest Products had a big, uh, they had a big log deck out there on the end of the spit and they were getting ready to load that onto a log ship. And uh, they said, well, log boobin is the only thing that we can do and we have, a, we have a supply of logs. So there was about a dozen of us that went out there and threw some of that together and uh, came up with a prototype and uh, they, uh, people came down and looked at it and they said, make a hundred feet of that. So we made a hundred feet. The next day they said, make as much of that as you can. And uh, 
that we started with 12 people and ended up with over 100 people within two days building that stuff. So, mm -hmm. but it's a com it, uh, commendable community effort yep. to get that off the ground uh, and using the resources that we had available without really knowing what was going to be effective. I remember there was a lot of uh, trial and error on that process. Well, the yeah, other. And there was a lot of emotions going on. I met with some people that were, you know, <clears throat> lived over on the other side and you try and think about booming off Tedka Bay or China Poot or any of those big bays where you have the water coming in and out and it was almost an impossibility without yep. diversion and such and uh, it kept people busy. Yeah, just kind of responding to what Bob said, it's uh, about prevention and not, uh, you know, response. The when that oil hit the water, it um, it expanded. It, the um, you know it wasn't refined oil; it was uh, crude oil, and everything it touched uh, became part of a bigger mass of uh, what they called moose, and it just expanded exponentially. And next thing you know, it would have taken five or ten. Exxon Valdez tankers to put all of that stuff back in because it was no longer the size of what was originally spilled. So um, the, the I think one of the biggest problems, and you know, this is all about the cleanup and you know, really what we need to talk about is prevention, but in the cleanup, uh, there was just no capacity. Uh, for uh, picking up everything that needed to be picked up uh, to the point where if you did a good job one day, um, I don't think you pleased the, um, the, the people that were in charge. The people that were in charge did not want that. <laughs> and uh, so the, the conflict there was, um, was immense and consistent. Uh, it just never went away between the people that wanted to clean up the mess and the people that were responsible for this ever-expanding amount of uh, oily material. I remember during uh, during the cleanup phase that multiple times people would say, well, we've been down cleaning this beach for the last seven days. We think we finally got it cleaned to our satisfaction, as good as it's going to get, and then the storm whips up the next day and brings it all back in, and they're back in the same spot cleaning up again. Um, it seemed like just a, a, a over and over, back and forth. You just never, you never caught a break. Um, let's let's talk about the dispersants really quick, because that's a, that's an important part of the uh, industry's response, uh, as Bob said, to to taking care of these, because it, it creates kind of a, a out of sight, out of mind situation. It doesn't really clean up anything, uh, but it it spreads it out. So dispersant, basically, to the to the point of the phrase. Uh, to, to make it as widely spread out as possible. Um, they use a catchy name for it these days, corrects it, um, which uh, see what it corrects. But we saw um, a little bit of its usage during the Exxon Valdez, and I think it was still under development at that point in, in time. Uh, I'm speaking off the hip here. Uh, but we saw that with the, uh, the Deepwater Horizon spill, where they uh, applied that liberally and uh, discovered months later that the the oil in the water column uh it wasn't dispersed it was drifting down to the bottom of the seafloor and just collecting there and uh even harder to capture at that point so 
Yeah, we, we learned a lot on that uh, experiment. And it was, um, yeah, out of, it's all about, like Bob says, out of sight, out of mind. And, and uh, it's, it just um, makes things more toxic for a greater um, biology. And, um, and it breaks the oil down into particles that are much easier to ingest by marine wildlife. So it becomes more part of the food chain than if they were just swimming near the mat. Uh, when it's actually in the water column, they're breathing it, they're eating it. Um, it's it's impossible to get away from. I uh, want to remind our listeners that we are taking calls this morning. If you'd like to join our conversation, ask some, some questions, share your stories or comments, give us a call, 907-235-7721. Also standing by on my email, josh at kbbi.org, if you'd like to uh, submit your questions that way. So let's, uh, let's shift a little bit from the actual event, and let's talk about the long-term recovery from the Exxon Valdez oil spill. Um, what has happened over the course of the last 33 years uh, that's been positive? What is still outstanding that needs to be taken care of? What's out there? Who wants to jump at that? I'll jump in for a second, and, and I'll, first I just want to say, you know, there was many, many lessons that came from the Exxon Valdez oil spill. To, to me, one of the most important ones is we recognize that oil is considerably more toxic to marine life than we previously understood, and specifically uh, compounds known as polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons are much more toxic to uh, certain types of salmon and and uh, other invertebrates and things. So that was really a, a big light bulb that, that went off. We recognized just how toxic oil was in the marine environment. But, um, you know, obviously there was, uh, you know, an enormous toll on seabirds and otters and, and other creatures. Then um, the AT1 pod of transient orca whales got hammered, and I don't think they've uh, they're recovering at all. I just looked at uh, the Exxon Valdez Oil Spill Trustees Council's website, which they have not updated since 2014. Um, but, you know, Herring in Prince William Sound got hammered and has not fully recovered, and pigeon guillemots and marbled merlets have not recovered. And, you know, whenever you have that type of trauma to a system, I mean, the assimilative capacity of our natural environment to recover is, is large. Um, and, but when you have such a trauma like the Exxon Valdez oil spill, it takes a long time. So um, things are coming back slowly, but some things like the AT1 pot of transient orcas and the herring uh, probably never will. Yeah. Uh, Mako, Robert, Betsy? Yeah, well, I'll just, you know, weigh in a little bit with the, the native villages out here, um, Nan Wallach and... and uh, and over in uh, Prince William Sound, Titlick, um, the, you know, they say when the tide's out, the table is set. And uh, that has been taken away from them. Um, it's, uh, th that has still has not recovered. And, and um, boy, um, that, that's been a long time. I, you know, I just, um, I'd also kind of like to go back to the importance of the, um, RCACs. Um, right now, you know, we're, we're all constantly faced with challenges, um, you know, like, um, you know, best available technologies and, and can, can we move along with that? Can we, can we grow with that um, in terms of prevention? And, and, uh, and sometimes I feel like the, well, in fact, I feel like this all the time, that the uh, RCAC is actually on the cutting edge 
of, of those uh, technologies and that the uh, agencies and organizations that we think uh, should be, you know, that we rely on as part of our, you know, state government, um, I feel is, is lacking and, and behind the times. And actually, we're um, are, uh, working to uh, uh, protect some of the um, <laughs> some of the pro some of the problems rather than uh, solving the problems and and uh, so I can't say enough about the RCACs and how important they are to uh, um, you know keeping keeping all of this in line for sure um, and we'll uh, we'll touch back on that here in about twenty minutes about how folks can get involved in those because that's a that's an open process that's something that everybody can be be involved with. Um, we have a caller on the line here. We'll go ahead and bring you up. Hi, caller. You're on the coffee table. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, I just want, wanted to say that uh, I worked for the state of Alaska in the field in Prince William Sound from uh, mid-July 89 till the winter came and shut us down. And then 90, 91, 92 on uh, Exxon Valdez settlement money funded scientific research projects in the Sound. And I guess the thing that I saw that was the worst was that as time went on, because like the guy was saying, if Exxon was a top-down company, uh, Exxon was calling the shots a lot with hand in hand with the Coast Guard, and it some and then we had all the uh, federally uh, owned lands, Forest Service, Park Service in Prince William Sound, and they had all the representatives there, so they were all on a federal level. And it, at one point, it became kind of the state versus the feds, Exxon, and the Coast Guard. And we were focusing on trying to clean the salmon streams up as quickly as we could before, because this was mid-July. We didn't want to allow the salmon to come into a horribly oiled salmon stream. And because pink salmon are intertidal spawners a lot, that means that the, the area between high tide, low tide at the mouth of the stream, they're actually spawning in those gravels. And so we were trying to clean that up but we were being told by the people in charge that uh, and the people who were cleaning the beaches weren't supposed to get too close to those salmon streams because they were worried that maybe they would uh, make it worse so me and my buddy who were working for fishing game were actually there cleaning those streams up and it seemed like the biggest problem with that whole response was there were just so many different people state federal all the different federal and state agencies and it, it, the communication wasn't there, and politics, of course, got involved. And so it got very frustrating as time went on to try to get anything done. And like the other guy was saying, as a storm would stir things up after you'd cleaned up an area like Sleepy Bay, <clears throat> it would be reoiled again. And then they were using things like Inapol, which was a mixture of industrial solvent and fertilizer, which was supposed to stimulate the natural bacteria that break down oil. And they were using it. They were applying it with uh, the bow ramps of, la of uh, landing craft, and they were spraying it with high-pressure hoses like at a car wash. And they were supposed to put a light level down over all the oiled areas, but instead they saw that, hey, if we hit this really hard, we can wash all the oil off the rocks into the water and it looks clean. And so that stuff is toxic, and it killed a lot of the bacteria and a lot of the other animals that lived in the intertidal areas, as well as juvenile fish. So... Those kind of things have to be thought out in advance, and they have to be followed rigidly, really, because without that communication and without common sense, things don't get better. They just get worse. Thank you. 
Thank you for your call. Um, so let me let me ask this from our panelists here. Oh, we'll drop that phone line here. Um, and again, if you're interested in calling, you can go ahead and give us a call, 907-235-7721. So the coordination around the response, uh, has that improved uh, over time? Uh, is a, a FEMA a more reactive agency for taking care of things like that, or are we still at the mercy of... Uh, 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 an unnumbered uh, number of bureaucrats and officials. Let's hear from Betsy on that. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah, Josh, you know, the, the spill was such a wake-up call. Um, Robert mentioned some of the legislation that came out at the federal level because of this, the Oil Pollution Act of 1990, and at the state level as well. This was a huge disaster and it was a big indicator that things needed to change. The state even warned the oil companies at that time, if you don't fix the problems that caused this immediately, I think they gave them something like 30 days, which is really fast, we're gonna shut you down. So you can imagine in a state like Alaska, this was such a problem that they were willing to shut down the pipeline if this problem didn't get fixed. And so we saw, it's actually really quite a remarkable story because you had these folks from all sides of the spectrum getting together at the table, quite literally in these rooms in the local library, staying up past midnight, trying to hammer out, how can we make this better? What on earth are we gonna do? How are we gonna make sure that uh, definitely we are preventing this from happening in the future and that we're prepared to respond to a spill this volume. And so we had uh, whole changes to the laws, the statutes, and then the regulations that support them. We have this thing called the response planning standard. So every company is required to have on the books the plans in place for how they're going to respond to a spill, what they're going to do, how they're going to keep those lines of communication open, who the people are and how they're trained, what equipment they have on site, what equipment isn't on site that they're able to call in from other places as backup. So is there, is, is there a mechanism in place to uh, forestall any corporate uh, interference with the process if, uh, if the, the company responsible says, oh, we know how to clean this up. We've got this brand new ingredient, which we've heard several times. Uh, go ahead, Bob. Well, I, I just say, you know, on, on paper, you, you know, it looks, it looks wonderful. And, you know, you know, there's a lot of assets available and you can get a lot of boats out there and, and it looks like there's the capacity. But as I said before, I believe that oil spill response is an oxymoron. But, you know, there, there's another uh, aspect. And Alaska has some of the strongest oil spill prevention response rules and laws in, in the nation. But with that said, you still have a phenomena known as government capture, where large corporations that are well-heeled spend a lot of money in our political system, and they're able to manipulate these agencies to essentially cave to their desires. And we see that in, in, a, in a lot of aspects, and I'll give one example. Uh, at the Valdez Marine Terminal, uh, where you have the uh, uh, terminal that uh, the the terminus of the pipeline coming down from the North Slope, and then you're loading the tankers there for uh, shipment out of the state, you've got large tank farm there. And those tank farms are supposed to be lined with what's called secondary containment. You know, if there's a spill of a tank, you want to contain that. You don't want it to be released in the environment. Well, there's some fairly ample but for the integrity of that miner, they get 60 pence, what you just heard, response painting. Instead of having, you know, X amount of response equipment, they can get a 60% credit against that, 
and have much less response equipment. That saves industry a lot of money. Mm -hmm. But if there's holes in the liner, you shouldn't get the credit. But it's persisted because government is incapable of really enforcing the law and pushing these large corporations around. So that's just one example, and there's, there's many. Uh, Robert Archibald, you've got your hand up there. Uh, Josh, so you were wondering about the relationship between the Coast Guard, the federal government, the responsible party, which that was Exxon in that case. They uh, stand up an incident command team, which manages a spill. And to begin with, the owner of the product will be the, uh, they'll take the responsibility of the spill. The government likes to see them maintain the responsibility because they have to have the deep pockets and the financial capability to pay for it. If the uh, unseen coordinator for the Coast Guard doesn't like what's going on, he has the power to take over the spill. But in the event that they do that, then the federal government has to start thinking about the ramifications of them having to pay for the response. So that's kind of the way that that works. But uh, Another issue that probably came out of the discussion after the Exxon Valdez spill, and Steve Cooper was the governor at the time, and they set up a motion very fast. They had to be able to clean up 300,000 barrels of oil in 72 hours, or they were going to uh, shut the pipeline down. And to do that, they set up what they call now SERVs, which is a ship escort and response system so they had to i don't know it was probably quadruple the amount of re response equipment they had but the most important thing that came out of that was the tug escort system so when we talk about prevention this is probably one of the most important aspects of that because instead of a ship going out to buy a reef on its own it has two escort tugs with it now so if, uh, Were they not required to have tugs to go through the, that area of the sound before the oil spill? They did not. They'd go as far as Potato Point, which is just outside the Valdez Narrows. So that was a significant change. Yeah. Thanks, Robert. Um, had a, a question from somebody emailed uh, emailed in asking about whether schools were closed during the cleanup to allow more volunteer efforts. Um and uh, I, my own recollection, I don't believe schools were closed, um, but we were close enough to the end of school at that point that, you know, it was a matter of weeks before we were all out running around anyway. Um, uh, yep. there, there it was were, spring break. Yeah, there, there, were, there were plenty of opportunities for us kids to get involved. But I do want to say that I know of a lot of teachers that use that opportunity as an ed education uh, 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 point to, uh, to give kids an opportunity to, to see and actually do some experiments on their own to... Uh, I know that there was all kinds of school projects for uh, how do you clean how do you clean a bird? What kind of soap works best to clean oil out of a feather? And uh, there was a lot of projects like that. How to how to clean was a primary subject for that spring for us. Uh, we do have and a we're caller. We're still supporting oh. that work. Uh, we the teachers came together and put together across the region. They came together and put together resources and lesson plans because all of a sudden they all had to teach this subject matter that was <coughs> new to them. And we still maintain and update that product now at RCAC. We have that lesson bank available for educators. Fantastic. Thank you, Betsy. Um, we have a caller on the line. Hi, caller. Thanks for calling the coffee table. 
Hello. This Hello. is Mike, Mike O'Mara. Hi, Mike. Thanks for joining us. I'm uh, calling in because I've, I've got a terrible echo on my phone. Let me see if I can correct that here. Go ahead. Is this better? Yes, it seems better. Um, I'm calling in because I was the curator for the Darkened Waters exhibit that the Pratt Museum did on the Exxon Valdez oil spill. And I, of course, was here at the time. And uh, I spent, turned out, uh, about 12 years uh, building, managing, uh, and updating the exhibit as it circulated around the country uh, for 10 years. And uh, we learned a lot of things in that process. And one of the most important ones is I want to reiterate <clears throat> what Bob and Mako and Robert uh, said earlier, that uh, you can't really clean up an oil spill. And people here who were involved learned that firsthand. And the more research we did uh, for the exhibit, which involved studying similar oil spills around the world, um, made that abundantly clear. And so that's why it's really important to focus from here on out on prevention of oil spills. And uh, that speaks to the present effort by the federal government to sell leases out in the Cook Inlet again, uh, which is a, a perilous prospect for all of us. Um, one of the things that uh, it pays to remember is that uh, oil and gas development, use, disposal, <laughs> is a dangerous pro prospect. The, the echo is back, by the way. I apologize. I'm trying to jockey the connections here, and it keeps popping back up on us. Uh, can we uh, can we talk through it and uh, uh, keep going, or should yeah, yeah, let's try it. I'll do the best I can with it. Thank you. Uh, lost my train of thought. But uh, could talk for a long time about it, so, so I won't uh, get into any details uh, other than a few things. Uh, oil and gas development is, is a dirty, dangerous business under the best of circumstances. And our experience in dealing with Exxon after the spill showed how clearly that uh, the profit motive was the only thing of concern to the oil and gas industry. And uh, typically they looked at things like these spills as uh, an operating cost. And, uh, Just a cost of doing business. Yeah, it, it, didn't really, it didn't really impress them at all that they had disrupted the whole community, the, the whole socioeconomic pattern, and, and the whole ecosystem from Cordova to Kodiak and, and clear up into uh, Cook Inlet. Uh, so don't expect anything to change based upon what industry wants to do because there won't be any changes based on that. And, the, and then the final thing about it is 
the spills are only a small element now of all of the problems caused by the use of petroleum. And uh, I think we know well enough that the use of hydrocarbons in the way that we're using them now is killing the planet. So uh, I think it's incumbent upon all of us to do our best to uh, get the uh, federal government to cancel this proposed lease sale. And, and then I'll close here on a couple of things just for interest's sake. Um, it's well established now that the efforts to clean up the uh, intertidal area after the Exxon Valdez spill were in many cases more damaging than the oil itself. The uh, cleanup effort consumed more petroleum than the estimated volume of oil that was spilled. It burned more energy. It's ironic when you think about it. Yeah. And then finally, in the litigation to prevent having to pay the award to the commercial fishing business, commercial fishermen, other businesses, and individuals harmed by the uh, spill, Exxon's money set aside uh, in case they had to pay the fine ended up earning more interest for the company than the award that they finally had to pay. Yeah. And so there it is. <laughs> well, thank you for your call, Mike. I appreciate your comments and your perspective on this. Um, yeah. Uh, now the uh, the settlement is that still an ongoing situation? Are there still funds from the settlement being paid out? Has that all been resolved? I think I mounted a couple of my checks that I got. Uh, I think one was for seventy eight cents. I think I had. Yeah. I, I think I actually got a check for zero. And um, so they look good on my wall as a reminder of uh, the responsibilities these uh, corporations have. But um, I don't know if, how much time we have left, but I'd like to talk a little bit about prevention. Absolutely. Um, uh, Mike, hey, thanks for calling in. We're going to go ahead and let you go and uh, uh, move on with the conversation. But thank you for calling in and yeah, sharing your and comments. Let me, let me thank all of you, too. It's, it's good to hear you pondering these issues again well much appreciated thank you bye-bye so yeah prevention as mike said uh kind of the uh the the core uh core responsibility it's not so easy to clean it up once it's out of the out of the tanker that's right that's right and again that's uh, again this is where the rcacs play a huge role um you know a couple of things one Right now, there's a, a division of the Alaska Department of um, Environmental Conservation, the DEC. There's a division called SPAR, and that SPAR stands for Spill Response and Prevention, or Spill Prevention and Response. And um, when it and its uh, its budget is being slowly reduced, uh, like we are reducing all budgets in every agency and 
And um, I think we've lost like eight positions. Uh, Betsy can probably correct me on that, but we've lost a lot of uh, positions in that um, division, which is, um, you know, the, uh, Alaska's oversight over the, over the oil industry. But what, we, but what the RCAC has been uh, very much aware of is not just the, the, the weakening of that uh, division, but also the uh, prevention, um, um, the prevention apparatus that's out in the in uh, Prince William Sound, like radar and radio systems, and those have been slowly, um, I don't want to say falling apart, but they have not been maintained well, and um, we're having real issues and. For some reason, it's it's um, the RCAC has been the one that's brought this to uh, the Coast Guard's attention and to the state's attention, mm -hmm. and um, and so again, this is where the citizen advisory group plays such an important role, is by bringing by making people the right agencies aware of these um, you know deficiencies. Well, let, let's talk about that because there's one that came up here in the last week or so uh, that the RCAC sent uh, uh, some reports out uh, over, and that's the, the tank farm over in at the Valdez Terminal. So for those that haven't uh, read the report or seen the article in the Anchorage Daily News, um, just to summarize, the, the tanks are uh, overloaded with snow. There's too much snow on top of the tanks, and uh, there is an issue with valves breaking, ventilation valves, and there's accumulation and venting of uh, toxic and flammable fumes going on. Um, what, else is, what else is happening there? What's, uh, what's happening and what's a response? Well, I'll jump in very quickly and just say, you know, that this is all un unfolding just now, and, and uh, you know, the, the, the vent issue there is certainly a serious issue, but to, from my perspective, it's indicative of a larger issue that we're seeing across the entire Trans-Alaska Pipeline system, and, and that is we're, we're, we're always seeing cutbacks on maintenance and staffing and oversight. So with an old and aging system, these are just the types of things that we would expect to happen if we're not going to keep up with it. So uh, the RCAC is doing a wonderful job at at, at providing that oversight, but I want to follow up just very quickly what Marco said and, and just recognize that unique role that these RCACs play. And they are novel in the entire world. You know, the idea of uh, citizen oversight for Alaska really came from a place called Solemn Though in the Shetland Islands in the North Sea. And, and they had a terminal there and they had citizen oversight and some folks went over and, and had some discussions and that idea came across the Atlantic uh, over to Alaska. And as Robert noted, uh, the Oil Pollution Act of 1990 kind of memorialized this idea, but it's really grounded in Alaska in Article 8 of our Constitution, which makes us the owner state. Everyone in our state owns the public water and fish resources and wildlife resources of our state and we have a right to responsibly use them, but we also have an obligation to protect them. Well, we give that obligation to protect them to our government in something called the public trust doctrine. It's an idea that goes back to ancient Roman times, but the idea is that the government has a fiduciary duty to manage these resources for current and future generations. Well, what if the government can't or won't enforce the law? That's where citizen oversight steps in, and that's where the RCACs play such a vital role because right now we're seeing our budgets getting cut everywhere at the state and federal levels. You don't have that oversight, and that's what makes the coconut and the, 
Prince William Sound RCAC so vital. So the state is working on uh, wrapping up budgets at the moment. Um, looks like they're on a little bit of a, uh, a COVID outbreak delay for the next couple of days. But uh, uh, <laughs> is there anything in the budget this time around to, uh, to reinforce the RCACs or any other mechanisms that within the state government? Robert, there is. Yeah. Yeah, not related to the RCACs, but uh, related to funding of that department that Mako was speaking, the spill prevention and response arm of, of DEC, that uh, House Bill 104, it's hopefully going to include a little shift in a, in a surcharge on refined fuel that will resolve that budget shortfall, because right now, the budget for that department is projected to be in the red at the end of this year. And that's a, a major problem. I would, you know, Mako mentioned eight jobs. I, according to my records, SPAR has lost 26 positions since 2015. BLM has a, another role of overseeing the pipeline. They only have one employee left in Valdez. Uh, the Coast Guard budget cuts, Mako mentioned the radars, those were actually not working at all in Prince William Sound for over a year. And they are working now, but they're old and obsolete. And, and the same at Alyeska, we've got, we've got aging equipment. We, the, the terminal there was not expected to still be functioning this long after it was built. We've got costs that go up with aging infrastructure and operating costs, those prevention costs, they stay flat no matter how much oil is coming through the pipeline, no matter what the cost per barrel of oil is, those things stay. And, and the companies are always going to be trying to they're looking at their bottom line. They're looking to cut costs. And that's exactly right in terms of the role of the RCACs is that we're playing a balancing act to make sure that, that things don't get cut to the point that we're at risk again. And we are seeing some of the biggest threats to this system since 1989 because of all of these things that I've named and these other gentlemen on the line here have named. You know, it seems... Um, it. It seems ironic to me that um, we would be reducing our oversight on the number one source of of, of monies for this state. The the oil um, the pipeline is what keeps this state going. You would think that we would have a real robust oversight on how that. Uh, from the North Slope all the way out Hinchinbrook entrance, that we would have just a robust oversight over that. And what we're doing is we're cutting back on that. We're reducing regulations and we're making, um, it's just the wrong direction to go. And, uh, and I, hope we, <laughs> I hope we don't pay for it again like we did with uh, the Exxon Valdez, but it is a, it is. Uh, it it kind of surprises me that we uh, uh, have such a, as a state, have such a cavalier attitude about it. Very nonchalant as far as well. It hasn't happened in 33 years. So, Josh, this is Robert, and I'm going to have to drop off pretty quick here. But uh, so the RCACs are the insurance policy for the for the citizens of the state of Alaska, and sometimes people may say, "Oh, they're a pain in the neck," but in essence. We try to make industry verify what they tell us, and we're very persistent about that because we are looking out for the best interest 
of this state. And uh, with citizen involvement, we have technical committees, we hire specialists in the field. So we're not just depending on our local knowledge, we go out and get the best in the field. So uh, when we criticize something, we back it up. And uh, it's a great organization and I'm certainly happy to be part of it. Well, thank you, Robert, and uh, thank you for joining us. That was Robert Archibald, who is a member of the uh, Prince William Sound uh, Regional Citizens Advisory Council. Thank you for joining us, and uh, uh, I appreciate that. So we have just a couple of minutes left here, so we're going to do a quick one-minute wrap for everybody. Um, let's start with uh, Betsy. Uh, quick closing comments. Sure, I would just invite people to hop onto our website. We have a newsletter that comes out several times a year where if you're interested in staying up to date on what we're seeing in the system, new science that's emerging and other work that we're doing, that's the best way to stay in touch as well as attend one of our meetings. All our meetings are open to the public. You can find information about those on our website. You can even find past agendas where if you've got an issue that you're interested in, you can go and find what the council has heard in the past, what we've been saying or what experts have shared with us because it's all there. And you can also reach out to us. Our staff are eager to help the public understand any of these complicated topics. That's our role here. And also to hear your perspective on things. Great, thank you, Betsy. Uh, Marco or Bob? Yeah, I'll, I'll just say that um, uh, Prince William Sound RCAC is, represents a, a number of communities, including Port Graham and Nan Wallach, Kodiak, and uh, the Kenai Peninsula Borough, which uh, is not necessarily in Prince William Sound, but uh, we definitely have board members from those communities. i also like to shout out uh, to CIRCAC, uh, the Cook Inlet uh, Regional Citizen Advisory Council, because it plays just as equally an important role for this area as uh, Prince William Sound, and that uh, both of them are highly active and highly aware, and um, any information uh, that somebody wants about what's going on in the industry, there's two great uh, places to go to. Great. Thank you, Marco. Bob? Yeah, well, thanks to you, Josh, and for KBI for having this coffee table. Really appreciate it. You know, the Regional Citizen Advisory Councils in, in Cook Inlet and, and Prince William Sound, to me, personify this idea of the owner state that, you know, we have a right to use our uh, resources responsibly and sustainably, but with that right comes the obligation to protect them, and that's an obligation for all of us, and we can't let that vigilance slip towards complacency because when it does, uh, we find ourselves in, in where we were in March 1989. So, uh, again, thanks so much for the time and, and the chat here. Thank you. Uh, to reintroduce our guest, we have Betsy Oliver, who is uh, with the Prince William Sound uh, Regional Citizens Advisory, Advisory Council. Um, also, we had Robert Archibald, who is a member of that council, and Mako Haggerty. Uh, Mako, are you also a member of the... I am. And uh, Bob Shavelson. Uh, Bob, are you also a member of the council, or...? Yes, I represent uh, environmental groups under the umbrella of what's called the Oil Spill Region Environmental Coalition. Very and good. I represent the Kenai Peninsula Borough. And is there a website for the, uh, the RCAC that people can go to for more? There absolutely is, pwsrcac.org. Excellent. 
All right. Well, thank you so much, all of you, for joining me. I appreciate you uh, having you on the uh, conversation this morning on the coffee table. That is it for our conversation this morning. Thank you to our callers for joining us as well. And we are going to call it here in about 12 seconds, as soon as the automation system cooperates with me. This is KBVI Homer AM 890. The time is 10 o'clock. Have a good morning.